Hello, and welcome to the Potential Psychology Podcast. I'm your host, Ellen Jackson, and it's my mission to share the science of human behavior in a practical, fun, and inspiring way. In each podcast episode, I interview an expert from the fields of psychology, well-being, leadership, parenting, or high performance. I pick their brain to uncover what they know about living well, what tips do they have for you and I, and I quiz them about how they apply their expertise in their own life. Join me as we discover simple, science-backed ways to live, learn, flourish, and fulfil your potential. Hello and happy podcast day. This is episode 92 of the Potential Psychology Podcast and we're talking about how to understand and overcome suffering, which sounds very intense, but it's actually a very everyday experience. Suffering, I mean. Suffering, like most and maybe all human experience, comes in degrees. We all struggle at different times with common life challenges in our relationships, in parenting, at work. We all get sad and stressed and worried. We might feel lonely or isolated at times. We definitely feel fear and guilt and shame. And these are all forms of suffering. And many of them come from within us, which is good news in a way, because we can do something about them with a bit of knowledge and a bit of practice and a bit of patience and a bit of support. And my guest today, Dr. Stan Standel, is here to guide us through all of those things. But first... It's time for me to share my three things. If you haven't heard about the three things, it's a new idea we're running with for a new year in each episode. I'll share three things that are helping me to fulfill my potential. And the three things are every week, something I'm reading, something I've learned and something I'm doing to grow. So pushing myself out of my comfort zone and helping me to fulfill my potential, even in tiny, tiny little ways, physically, emotionally, or psychologically. And of course, I'd love to hear about your three things too. So send me an email, a DM through the socials or post a pic on your socials and tag it PP3Things with the digit three. It'll be fabulous to see what you've got to share. So my three things for this episode, I have started a new audio book, which I'm listening to while the dog and I walk, and it's called Grounded, How Leaders Stay Rooted in an Uncertain World. It's by Bob Rosen, who's the CEO of Healthy Companies International, and it was a New York bestseller. It's a few years old now, not that many can't remember and I don't have it here on my desk actually, so I can't tell you exactly, but I'm going to guess around sort of 2014, 2015, something like that, 2016 maybe. Anyway, it was a New York Times bestseller and what I love about it or what I'm loving about it is that it really delves deeply into how leaders function at their best as human beings. And this doesn't matter if you're a leader of a large organisation or a small not-for-profit or a startup or a community or even a family. We all operate at our best, especially in complex, often ambiguous environments, which is, to be honest, much of the world right now now, when we know who we are, when we know what drives and motivates us, and when we're connected to our body and paying attention to our energy levels and our emotions and what they're telling us, and then knowing how to 
manage these well. So we know that when we're curious and open to new experiences and when we know our place in the world, we have a sense of meaning and purpose. All of these things are connected. They help us to function at our best. And that's critical for anybody who's helping to lead others to a place of thriving and flourishing, whether economically or psychologically or emotionally or developmentally in any way. The book absolutely speaks to everything that we're passionate about here at Potential Psychology and the work that I do in leadership and personal effectiveness in the workplace. So it's an excellent read if you happen to be an emerging, aspiring or current leader or you're wanting to create a thriving workplace. And speaking of which... Shameless plug, my guide to creating a thriving workplace is available on the Potential Psychology website at the moment. It's free and takes you through a series of simple steps to help you create a thriving team and work environment. And if you pop over to potential.com.au, you'll find it there and we'll put a link in the show notes as well. So that's the number, the number one thing, thing number one. It's what I'm reading. My second thing for this episode, something I've learned, is to reapply your sunscreen when you're out in the sun, in Australia in particular. I have to learn this, relearn it really, every year. I don't know why I make the same mistake every year. I only make it once a year because I've learned then for the summer, but it's an uncomfortable lesson and it's one that I am suffering through again as we speak. So it's not a bad sunburn, but it is uncomfortable. And I just feel like a dill because being as fair as I am and burning so easily, I really should know better. You'd think by 48, I would have learned from the experience, but apparently no. (laughs) So even if you're smothered or you have smothered yourself in sunscreen before you leave the house, make sure you reapply it after a few hours. I'm hoping that you might be able to learn from my mistake, even if I'm a bit slow to do so. And my third thing for this episode, something I'm doing to fulfil my potential, is making a greater effort in 2021 to maintain my relationships and connections. 2020 was such a bonkers year and by the end of it, it really became patently obvious to me that I was investing way too much time into work and home and inward looking things and not nearly enough time into friendships and wider family and outward connections. So I'm making the extra effort this year to catch up with people, to socialise now that we can a little more here in Australia at least, and to have non-work related conversations, just enjoy others' company and be curious about their lives and their worlds. And I have to say, it is quite a joyous and very therapeutic experience to get out of your own head. And we know from the science that connection with others is a major contributor to well-being. So if you perhaps became a little self-focused as well over 2020, and it was a very easy thing to do, then perhaps a bit of conscious social connection might help you too. And of course, let me know about your three things on Instagram or LinkedIn or any of the socials by tagging your pics, hashtag PP3things. Okay, it is time to turn our attention to other matters relating to people and connection and well-being and our interview with today's expert and our conversation about compassion and among other wonderful things why we need compassion to survive as a species so let's go my guest today on the show is dr stan Steindl, Brisbane-based clinical psychologist, business owner, researcher, adjunct associate professor in the School of Psychology at the University of Queensland, and 
author of The Gifts of Compassion, How to Understand and Overcome Suffering, which is very recently published by Australian Academic Press. And today we are talking about compassion, a term that is used frequently, but I know when I started thinking about it, I said, I wonder what it actually really means. What forms does it take? Why has it evolved as a critical element of being human? And how do we use it to make day-to-day life a little easier, a little kinder, both for ourselves and for others? So welcome, Stan. It's so great to have you on the show. Hello. It's very much a delight to be here. Thanks for having me. You are very welcome. As I say with every one of my guests at the beginning, I have so many things to ask you. There are so many topics and so many questions that have arisen for me on my reading of the gifts of compassion. And also it's just a topic that I think has started to become discussed a little more, certainly in psychological circles. And I'm hoping more widely within our general population and perhaps our audience who are listening in today. So can I start by asking a very straightforward question, although it might not be a bit straightforward answer. What do we mean by compassion, psychologically speaking? Yes, well, that is the $64 million question in some ways. (laughs) And and actually, it's interesting because there's different perspectives on that. Sometimes people might see compassion as as a feeling or, you know, those sorts of things. In compassion-focused therapy, which is really the the basis of my book and the gifts of compassion is really coming from a CFT approach, we would see compassion as a motivation, a motivation that really has two psychologies. The first psychology is about engaging with suffering, being sensitive or noticing or aware of suffering that perhaps is being experienced by another or even ourselves. And then the second psychology is one of motivation and action. So being motivated to do something to help alleviate or prevent even suffering. So the CFT definition really is compassion is a sensitivity to suffering in self or others and a commitment to try to alleviate or prevent it. And there's a whole range of attributes and competencies that might also come into that. But it's that kind of basic algorithm being engaged with suffering and being motivated to help. Okay, which is fascinating because I'm intrigued by language and words and how they form a concept in our mind that may not always be consistent across everybody and may not even necessarily be something that we've really thought through ourselves. And so when I was doing a little research, I thought, oh, what's the dictionary definition of mm. compassion? And and it was consistently around something like a feeling of deep sympathy and sorrow for another who is stricken by misfortune, accompanied by a strong desire to alleviate the suffering. So there's that two-part mm. component But it feels to me like perhaps there's a bit of difference that that kind of sympathy and sorrow piece, does that come into play in terms of our psychological definition of it? Or is it just more that awareness without having some kind of value attached to it? It's very interesting because I don't know about you, but when I was studying psychology and we were doing, you know, counselling 101 or something like that, we were sort of told, you know, empathy, good, 
sympathy not good or bad or something like that. (laughs) And there's still sort of a, a sense of that around the place that somehow sympathy and sorrow for the other person might not be a useful attribute. But actually, from a CFT point of view, that engagement side of compassion, that first psychology, is made up of a, of a number of attributes. And so, of course, sensitivity is, is one of those attributes there. But sympathy and empathy are both also part of what it means to engage with suffering. So empathy, of course, is being able to, cognitive empathy might be more about perspective taking and kind of understanding cognitively what the other person's experience is like or what they might be feeling or what this might mean for them. And then affective empathy, where we kind of resonate with that, we have a a felt sense of perhaps what they're going through. But then sympathy is a feeling of our own. So it's feeling moved by perhaps what they're going through, feeling moved by their suffering or touched by that suffering. And it's important because empathy gives us an understanding of what they're going through, but then sympathy just helps to motivate us to want to help. Sometimes empathy as a skill might be used in other ways. <laughs> For example, if we can understand you know, what really matters to another person, we might use that to manipulate them actually, Mm -hmm. or for other sort of more self-interested purposes. Whereas when we have empathy plus sympathy, then we feel moved and motivated to actually help. But sympathy, different though to pity or having a kind of a looking down on the person, Mm -hmm. um, but rather just feeling moved, feeling touched by what the person's going through. Of course, with sympathy, and feeling moved, we, we then experience potentially distress too. You know, we can feel moved by another's suffering to the extent that we experience personal distress. And the difficulty there, of course, is that that can then motivate us away from that suffering. So another important attribute would be distress tolerance, where we develop skills and competencies around just being able to manage our own feelings and, and managing the distress that might be there. And then the other two attributes, just to complete that circle, I guess, would be firstly non-judgment. So in compassion, we're trying to be non-judgmental, not necessarily never making judgment calls. You know, we, we sort of need to be able to identify, yes, that person is suffering and or no, they're not. Or So there's certain discernment that's really important there. But trying to be non-judgmental in terms of non blaming, non-shaming, especially of of the person who might be suffering. And then finally is a care for well-being, a motivation that really is about caring for the well-being of of others and oneself. So those are kind of considered the six attributes of engagement, that sensitivity, sympathy, distress tolerance, empathy, non-judgment, and care for well-being. You did very well there. Normally when I say there's six or five or four or three of something, I can only remember (laughs) all but one of them. So you've done well. They've been drilled into me because it's actually, it becomes important because I remember, you know, like often for me early on, compassion was certainly there and, you know, it would be on the list of, of things that seem important as a therapist or whatever, but often not 
thoroughly sort of explored or developed. Whereas to just know some of these various components, it gives us a way to just cultivate compassion, working on the bits that might not be as fulfilled as others. And and also for clients as well, you know, we, we're able to really flesh that out and maybe it is distress tolerance that is the thing that we need to work on so we can pick that bit and, and do more more focused work. And that, I think, as you were describing all of those elements, it really, it did remind me that like most elements of being human, something like compassion is complex and it is mm. nuanced and there are lots of elements to it. It's never quite as straightforward. So if I go back to my dictionary definition, you know, you said that there's that motivational element, which is the doing part, but also that it's not just about recognizing somebody else's distress or suffering and and looking down on that or feeling some kind of pity for that, Mm. that it is as much about all of those human and emotional elements as well as the cognitive. You know, we can look at that and say that's, you know, Mm. cognitively we might feel pity for someone. It might motivate some action in some regard. But if we can take all of those other elements that you've described into consideration and understand that and see how that plays out, then our actions could well be quite different as a consequence. Does that make sense? It makes a lot of sense, actually. If we respond to suffering just on the basis of a more emotional motivation, we can sometimes be helpful, but sometimes we might actually be unhelpful. Mm. We might step in and try to fix things in a way that is sort of a little bit about helping us to alleviate our own distress (laughs) more so than necessarily being the best way to help the other person Or, or equally, you know, it might become overwhelming. Remember that poor child who was washed ashore on, on the, the Turkish beach, I think it was, mm. some time ago, mm. and, and many of us just had to turn away or, or turn the TV off. It was just very overwhelming and, and distressing. And so, yes, we're not wanting necessarily to just have an emotional experience with compassion, but rather try to work in all of these other other little elements. It takes a lot of wisdom, really, to be compassionate. Yeah, that's exactly as I was reading the book and also just listening to you now. It's a complex psychological phenomenon, I guess, you know, to be able to Mm. fully understand and and be fully compassionate. And one of the things that in reference to everything you've just described, you've talked about Mm. others, but also about yourself. And in the book, you mentioned that there's kind of three flows to compassion. Mm. Can you describe the three flows and, and perhaps the third one, which might be the one that we forget about more readily? It's a really, it's an important part really of considering compassion, this idea that, that there are in fact three flows. We, we might express compassion for others, of course, and, and that's the one that often most readily comes to mind and we think about trying to be compassionate for others who might be suffering or disadvantaged and, and so on. But secondly, there is also the flow of self-compassion. So noticing our own suffering and being motivated to do something to help there as well. The third one that you were alluding to is actually the flow of receiving compassion from others. And it's very interesting because that can be the one that we forget or even feel most reluctant about. I mentioned in the book about doing some training with a lot of student nurses and measuring their flows of compassion, so to speak. There's a a couple of questionnaires that we use to measure all of that. 
And as you would expect, they were very high on compassion for others, but quite low on self-compassion, but also receiving compassion from others, lower than perhaps you might even find in the general population. And, And it's important to consider because we want to try to get the three flows in balance. If if we're being compassionate towards others a lot, and that's very good, but it gradually can kind of use us up and we can sort of end up feeling pretty spent with all of that. And so we're wanting to find ways. Compassion fatigue is that term, isn't it? Compassion fatigue. Yeah. Absolutely. And that's certainly a term that we might use for the helping professions, but even just people generally, we, we can sometimes feel a bit used up when the compassion is just flowing out towards others. And so finding ways to offer ourselves compassion and open ourselves up to maybe receiving compassion from others as well, that can be very important for the nursing group, of course. It's about those morning tea type chats, you know, where they're able to talk about their day and another person is able to kind of listen and empathize and then we can offer that to them as well. And we can see that there's a a giving and receiving of compassion that's starting to flow. And one of the topics that I know I've been talking a lot about both here on the podcast, but also with clients has been around self-care and self-compassion, I guess, part of that. Mm. You know, we've talked about the mechanics of self-care, the sorts of things we can do to look after ourselves and how that is broader than just perhaps the Instagram-worthy bubble baths and, you know, Netflix. But (laughs) one of the challenges that I know many of the people that I've spoken to has been around giving ourselves permission Mm. for self-care. Does that fit into that notion of self-compassion? One of the things that has been identified in CFT is fears, blocks, and resistances to compassion. We all have certain reservations about being compassionate. Well, sometimes across the three flows, actually, we we might have reservations about being compassionate towards others. We might think, oh, they'll just take advantage of me or or something like that. But we certainly can have fears, blocks, and resistances about self-compassion or receiving compassion from others and we can feel like maybe we don't really deserve it or aren't really worthy of compassion from others or we might think that it's too much like self-pity or that others might see us as weak or even it's too self-indulgent. I can be compassionate towards others but not myself, that's too self-indulgent, too selfish and so on And, and so Often with compassion-focused therapy, one of the really early tasks is about exploring all of that, exploring fears, blocks, and resistances, and just identifying what is it for this person? What might be a barrier or an inhibitor of developing across the three flows of compassion, but especially to self-compassion and and receiving compassion from others, trying to identify the fears, blocks, and resistances there, gradually exploring them, tapping into the wisdom that might actually be there in those. There's often really important information that we can sort of understand and insights that we can gain from properly understanding the person's reservations. Then as we work it through, often compassion just bubbles up then and sort of fills the space. So it was there, it just needed to be unlocked. Exactly, yeah. I mean, that CFT is very much an evolutionary theory. And the idea there is that compassion 
is there within us. It's evolved as part of the species, as you said right at the start. And so oftentimes if we can just kind of work through and resolve a little bit of those fears, blocks and resistances, then it unlocks the compassion that, that is already there. There were two things that come to mind regarding some of those blocks and fears and resistance perhaps that I've heard from clients. And I work with people in workplaces and and coaching clients rather than people who are, I'm going to say, therapy and inverted commas. (laughs) Mm -hmm. But one is letting yourself off the hook. So this idea Mm. that if I show myself some compassion, I'm somehow letting myself off the hook that I'm not upholding the standards that I expect of myself or that I perceive others expect Mm. of me. And the other one is around a vulnerability, that fear that people will see me as being weak. And I'm thinking particularly of many of the managers that I work with in workplaces that, you know, if I allow myself some compassion or I admit that I am human or that I have made a mistake, that I am therefore somehow vulnerable and it will put me in a difficult position in terms of those that I, I work with. And I'm guessing that you'd argue that neither of those are helpful ways of thinking about this. Yes, exactly. The idea that compassion is self-indulgent or letting us off the hook or, or that compassion is is weak. It's interesting because sometimes it can be useful to really explore with people what compassion actually is. Because a lot of those ideas come from kind of misconceptions a little bit you know i mean you mentioned the the bubble baths before for example and and that's a a very useful thing to do and and i do them too <laughs> and it's a self care strategy and also sometimes self compassion is actually about doing the tough stuff not the easy stuff an old saying i like is a good life is not necessarily the same as a life that always feels good and compassion's a little bit like that. You know, compassion might be that we give ourselves a little break and have a, a sort of a self-care day and, and that sort of thing. But self-compassion equally might be, no, I, I need to start getting up a little earlier and going to the park and doing some exercise. Not really easy or letting ourselves off the hook, but certainly good for us and, and in the service of our own well-being. And, and so that often we can work through some of those misconceptions and explore it from there. In terms of compassion being weak or or that sort of thing, if you think about it, if you think of some of the big names in compassion, Mother Teresa or Nelson Mandela or something like that, there's no weakness there. Compassion is strong and powerful and takes enormous courage and stability and groundedness, actually, that often to be compassionate towards others or ourselves or whatever takes enormous strength. And so Mm. we often refer to wisdom, strength and courage, and commitment to being helpful, that those are some of the key elements there to what compassion actually is. Yeah, I think there's some wonderful ways to frame that, that I think would be better received perhaps than our dictionary definition of compassion in some elements of our our population, considering it as, you know, wisdom and strength and courage. And absolutely, I can see how it does. It does take courage to allow a little bit of vulnerability to accept that we're human, that we make mistakes, that, you know, we feel things and that both for ourselves and for other people, there's definitely an element of courage required in that. 
Yes, yes, yes. And, and I mean, if we think about it, compassion is about suffering. So it's no small thing to be able to approach and be in the presence of suffering with a commitment to help that takes a, an enormous amount of strength and awareness and presence of mind and wisdom and, and so on to do that. Even that, yes, opening yourself up to distress, which is, as you said, mm. something that could well occur when we're showing compassion for others. Stan, mm. you mentioned before the evolutionary element of this and the fact that this is a, a critical element of being human. Where has this come from? How does this evolved and, and why is it evolved to be an important piece of the survival of our species, I guess? I know in some of your previous episodes, you've talked about things like the threat system. And you've mentioned fight, flight, freeze, appease would be the other elements of it as well. And, you know, we've certainly evolved brain functions that are all about dealing with threats and protecting us from threats and, and so on. And that's been an important part of survival and, and reproduction. And we also, in CFT, so we think of the threat system, but we also think of the drive system which is more about the sort of obtaining resources, finding a mate, seeking food and other, and other things like that. Competition, having successes, achieving things. And so we have the drive system as well. If we had the, just the threat system, we'd probably try and stay safely in the cave. And you know, <laughs> But we needed to go out of the cave and get stuff. So we've got this drive system that also helps with that. But Humans were never all that fast or all that strong, really, you know, in terms of dealing with threats and, and so on. And so we really needed to have a third system. And in CFT, we really talk about the soothing affiliative system, which is a, a third system of the brain that, that's much more about soothing, nurturing, connecting with, feeling safe with others. Of course, you know, when our little babies are, are born, sort of plop kind of thing. I'm, I think that's how it happens. I'm not sure, but um, <laughs> something like that. Something like that. They are terribly vulnerable. You know, they are, I mean, they have trouble actually getting on the breast and, and feeding, you know, at the start. That takes quite a lot of concerted efforts. And, and then they don't walk or talk for a couple of years and let's face it they can't even hold their heads up when they're babies can they exactly they're they're born really prematurely actually because we came down from the trees and our pelvises narrowed and then our babies were born earlier and then they just needed to be looked after for many years i mean i think sometimes they don't leave home well into their 20s so um we had to evolve this third system which was really about certainly looking after our vulnerable young, but looking after each other generally. You know, we, we develop this soothing system to look after one another. And, and we've always looked after our young, but also our elderly or those of us who are maybe sick or, or injured or, or other things. There's, there's lots of archaeological evidence out there that really indicates that that's a, a big part of our species too. So we, we can be cruel. We, we are probably one of the most cruel species to members of our own species, but to other species as well, unfortunately. But really, we do have this propensity towards caring, caring for each other. And I mean, in, in some ways, we're over 8 billion people on the planet, I think. So we, we obviously 
care for each other more so than we kill each other, I guess. And, and so this soothing system is really about a, a caring motivation and, and it, it kind of evolved. But that's kind of the older brain kind of functions. We also have what you might think of as the newer brain functions, things like social awareness or being able to set intentions or being able to imagine people further afield or and so on and so all of that really helps to supercharge if you like that kind of more mammalian caring motivation and turn it into something more like compassion which really is this i'm not sure if it's only unique to humans a lot of a lot of people often will say well you know animals can be compassionate to that and, and certainly they they care for each other and, and so on but that ability to actually imagine a person way over in another country and do something to donate or, or other things, you know, that seems to be unique to humans, I guess. And, and it, it really emerges out of that soothing system that we use to survive. Mm. So that explains where it comes from, why we have it. But those complex elements of the brain, that ability to imagine and project and set intentions, mm. et cetera, can also contribute to our suffering, can't it? Mm. Well, this is the thing that evolution is very interested in survival and, and reproduction, and it does that very well, but it's not so interested in making us happy. And so lots of these functions will have certain trade-offs. I mean, the most obvious example of that is the threat system, which, you know, anxiety or anger or disgust, these kind of emotions have been very important in terms of our survival, but it also causes us a, a lot of suffering especially actually when it gets into tricky loops with imagination or remembering you know, it becomes fearful imagining and ruminating and and also self-monitoring too that we're such a hyper social species it's so important to our survival but it becomes a real target of our own self-monitoring am i being approved of in the group am i about to be judged or rejected or cast out of the group. So we have this tendency to really monitor ourselves all the time and that can lead to self-criticism or even more difficult emotions like shame and so on. If you think about, you know, what's the situation in which primitive humans were most at risk? Well, it was if they were out there alone, if they were rejected or cast out of the group and they were alone, then they would dead. So that's a really key part of the tricky loops in the brain and the way that we constantly monitor for social threats and kind of create these self-conscious emotions and monitor that all the time. Mm. So we end up having sometimes these conversations, so there, or perhaps not sometimes, perhaps oftentimes, <laughs> these mm. conversations with ourselves about the things that we are imagining are happening in the minds maybe of others. And then that starts to have an impact on not just our behavior, is it, but also our emotions. That's where that stress or anger or anxiety or disappointment or fear or shame or any of those sorts of tricky emotions can come from making it extraordinarily difficult sometimes to be happy and not suffer ourselves. We're very much better to be safe than sorry. So we much prefer to err on the side of maybe seeing a threat that's not there 
than ever missing a threat that is there. And so we sort of imagine the minds of others, but we kind of imagine the worst sometimes because that feels safer to do all of that. And, and so we, we definitely get caught in these, these tricky loops of the mind. But here's the thing. This is the evolutionary model. It's really recognizing that our brains were designed for us, not by us. You know, we were born with these tricky brains and all of this stuff is just in there, you know, programmed already. And so the key element there, certainly from a compassion-focused therapy point of view, is just the notion that it's not our fault. You know, none of this is our fault. It's, it's not our fault that our minds get caught up in threat and, and it's not our fault that we feel fearful and, and angry and, and sad sometimes. And it's not our fault that we are constantly monitoring out, you know, for social threats and so on, because that's how our brains were designed. And actually that's why we're even here now is because all of that helped us to survive. So the evolutionary approach really helps to de-shame and de-blame ourselves and create that mind awareness whereby we can sort of understand this is how the brain works. This is how our mind works and kind of go from there. Mm. And you make the point in the book, and I do love this, that whilst it is not our fault, it is our responsibility. What do you mean by that? Well, we want to de-blame and de-shame, but we don't want people to therefore feel resigned or have a kind of a disregard or a callous disregard about their mind and, and what it's doing. We want to alleviate and prevent suffering, and we, we want to try to certainly not cause more suffering. And so, in a sense, it's our responsibility, therefore, to understand our mind and understand how it's working and notice what it's doing at any given time and then make certain decisions about what we might do with that, that we, we can bring all the powers of the tricky brain for good in that sense. Mm. So we can set intentions and we can mentalize and we can understand others and ourselves and we can bring empathy to the table and sympathy and so on. And, and we can take responsibility to do things in certain ways with an intention to be helpful. One of the really nice sayings in CFT is, may I be helpful rather than harmful to myself and others. And and that's the responsibility piece, is just trying to work with, with all of that. And is that where the motivational element, that second piece comes in, you know, where, where we move from perhaps an awareness and thinking about this to a point of action, whether that's around self-compassion, compassion for ourselves or, or compassion for others? Yeah, I think that's a beautiful point. It really is in there that motivation becomes a key part of it. And actually, because it's motivation, there can be two sides to it too. <laughs> there might be the side that argues against doing something. And so we want to accept and validate that that piece might be there as well. And, and then there might be the other side, which is about arguments for doing something in that instance. And so we want to explore and elaborate a, upon that a little bit, but gradually you know, helping people to move in the direction of cultivating this compassionate mind and, you know, may I be helpful rather than harmful to myself and others. One of the metaphors is we have our guts and our gut produces 
you know, outputs, certain outputs <laughs> that are not necessarily overly pleasant in a way. And, and so, but we don't blame ourselves or shame ourselves for that. We just create toilets and sewage systems and we, <laughs> we deal with it hygienically. And, and I think that's the responsibility bit here is that our brain actually is also an organ that has certain outputs, you know, and some of those aren't overly pleasant either. And, and so we, we're trying to find ways to deal with all of that psychologically, hygienically, if you like. Mm. And that's really where compassion starts to come into it. That's a fantastic, I was going to say, it's a lovely way. I've been thinking about it. <laughs> it's that metaphor, not, not that lovely in lovely. some ways, but a helpful way perhaps yes. to think about particularly with that self-compassion, you know, that piece in mm. there around just understanding that we are human, that our brain does these things. It's not always helpful to us or to others, but it is just part of being human and that's okay. So there's a, a little bit of, you know, forgiveness mm. of ourselves. But as you say, mm. then turning that around to be able to say, well, so what do I do about this? How do I handle this? Mm. And that may be in action, but it can also just be in thoughts and how we manage our thoughts, can't it? Mm. I was talking to one of the people I'm working with at the moment as a clinical psych in private practice. And he came in and he said that he had a, he sort of felt like he had a win because he started to get a bit panicky, which is what we've been working on. And then he said, you notice his mind said to himself, don't be ridiculous. It's just anxiety. It'll pass you idiot. But, <laughs> but he said he, he did that, but it didn't actually make him feel better for some reason. So it was this idea that he was kind of challenging the thoughts and, and so on, but at the same time with this much more hostile or, or even self-attacking self-criticism that was in there. And, and I think it's not my fault, but it is my responsibility. That's where we try to soften all that. You know, in, in some mm. ways, it's as simple as just softening the tone of my inner voice, you know, being able to make those kind of changes to the way we're thinking, but doing it in a way where the voice has warm or friendly or supportive or encouraging or reassuring or validating tones rather mm. than really hostile tones. And so in, in many ways, that's where we start to head with self-compassion is really just adjusting some of the basics, you know, adjusting the body posture, adjusting the facial expression, adjusting the voice tone, and just bringing that warm friendliness to the way we start to treat ourselves, e even when things are going really wrong, but just trying to approach ourselves without shame and blame, but instead with this kind of warm friendliness. Mm. And obviously that goes for how we speak to others as well, because I'm thinking mm. about sometimes the conversations we might have or the interactions we might have, perhaps with our nearest and dearest, at which we mm. don't necessarily bring forth our warmest and friendliest mm. tones when we're feeling under stress or under pressure ourselves, or we're particularly distressed about a situation. Mm. One of the ways of conceptualizing that that I found very helpful, that notion of speaking to ourselves in a, in a kinder and more friendlier way was something that I heard from Kristen Neff, who does a lot of work in self-compassion, around just, you know, speak to yourself as you would a friend. And I've often used that mm. with clients and people that I've worked with, this notion that, you know, you wouldn't have that kind of cruel, harsh, combative type mm. conversation with somebody else. And yet we seem to think that it's okay to talk to ourselves 
in that mm. way, to berate ourselves for being, you know, unsatisfactory or failing in some way. But yeah, and when we do turn it around and start to think about having that friendlier conversation with ourselves, I know for me personally, the first time I came across that, it started to increase my own awareness of how I spoke to yes. myself and then was then able to adjust it. Yeah, I mean, if we had someone that we cared about who was experiencing anxiety or panic, we would never say to them, don't be ridiculous, it's just anxiety, it'll pass, you idiot. <laughs> we wouldn't say that to someone. That <laughs> we, we hope you wouldn't. <laughs> yeah, yeah, well, generally speaking, we would know at least that that probably wouldn't help them or soothe them or, or reassure them or give them a sense of encouragement. So, yes, it is such an interesting quirk of human, the species, really, that the way that we speak to ourselves and, and how we can be so harsh with all of that. And it happens many times a day. You know, I, I can go down to my car and I've forgotten my keys and all of a sudden, you idiot comes to mind, you know, and then I, I drive off and then I think I've forgotten my charger, you idiot comes to mind. You know, like it, it's amazing, really, when you stop and start to be really aware of this stuff, just how often we're kind of berating ourselves, as you say, mm -hmm. and, and sometimes even just changing half of those can really make for a different day. And where does that come from? Because as you say, you know, we shouldn't be hearing this from those nearest. And, and I know, unfortunately, in some circumstances, we do hear those things from our nearest and dearest in, in some yes. family situations more so than others. But if in theory, we don't hear it from others, it's not being modelled for us, where does it come from? Why do we become so critical of ourselves so quickly? Well, I think it really is an evolved brain function. We are hardwired to critique ourselves in order to stay safely in the group. So we are programmed to watch out for any little thing that we might do that's wrong or disappointing or going to be disapproved of or judged. And we're just programmed to criticize ourselves on that basis. And often people will have a whole bunch of rationales that they have why self-criticism is good for them. When we ask people, they'll say, well, it motivates me or it keeps me on track or it stops me from getting lax or lazy or it helps me to improve and so on. So we, we'll often have this sense that self-criticism is really helpful. But of course, when you do a bit of a functional analysis of it and you work through a little process with them and you have them kind of imagine something that they're critical about and try to work out how does that leave you feeling, they'll often say, well, I feel less motivated, I feel smaller, I feel sad, and so on. And, and so we hold tightly on to this idea that self-criticism is helpful, even when actually it can be a real source of depression, ultimately, mm. and, and feelings of, of shame and, and that sort of thing as well. There, obviously, there are certain forms of self-criticism. You know, sometimes there certainly can be self-improving self-criticism where the professional golfer who has a round of golf and when she goes back to the clubhouse, she doesn't think about all of her really good shots. She thinks about the shots that didn't go so well and then she thinks, okay, well, tomorrow I'm going to go and practice my short game or I don't actually play golf, so I'm not sure if that's the right way to say it. But, um, <laughs> so we, that's that sort of reflective practice. So that, that can be useful. It, it's really the the self-hating, self-attacking self-criticism that can be most problematic. 
And as you say, I think perhaps whilst there might be some at least short-term motivational benefits, it's not going to make you happier. So it has impacts on our relationships with ourselves, relationships with others, and our general feeling of well-being. Stan, you mentioned shame earlier as one of the emotions, one of the perhaps more complex social type emotions that we experience. Mm. And I'm intrigued by this because, again, this has been a topic that I suppose has just started to kind of eke out there a little bit. Brené Brown has done a lot of work in in shame. And Mm -hmm. interestingly, I was fortunate enough to read a book called See What You Made Me Do by Jess Hill, which is around domestic abuse. And Mm. in her exploration of some of the causality of domestic abuse, she covered the topic of shame. So what can you tell us about shame as an emotion and and where it fits with compassion? Yes, it's a very big topic all of its own, isn't it? (laughs) It is. Yes. Sorry, I don't expect you to go into the full depth of it here. We don't have the time, but well, it's interesting. I, I mean, I think that it is very relevant in compassion-focused therapy. And Professor Paul Gilbert was the person who first developed CFT. And really, it was developed, in a sense, to work with self-criticism and shame. And so, it, it is an important part of, of how we might think about things and work with people. And shame is a very painful and actually universal self-conscious emotion. Everyone can feel shame to various degrees and all around the world actually as well. We've just recently done a a study that we're about to submit to a journal that's looking at shame across nations and some very interesting commonalities there even between, I think we had Portugal, France, Australia, Singapore and Japan and yet there was still a lot of commonality there. But the idea is that shame to evolved as a way to keep us safely in the group. And, you know, you can imagine that for primitive humans, you know, things were scarce, food was scarce or whatever. And so every now and then someone might think, oh, I'll just take a little bit more of that food or something like that. But then shame might creep in. What are you doing? Oh, i I am a bad person. I, I should never do these things. You know. Oh, okay, then you can stay. Sort of, sort of how shame might have helped us to stay safely in the group. And so, it's an evolved emotion. And there's different types of shame. So there's external shame, which is really the idea of how am I being seen in the minds of others. Are others seeing me as inadequate, inferior, unlovable, no good? And we are particularly concerned with external shame and worry about all of that. And then we have internal shame, which is really more about how I see myself as inadequate, inferior, unlovable, no good. So both external shame and internal shame are our own beliefs. It's just that External shame is about our beliefs about how others see us, and internal shame is our beliefs about ourselves. And so these can be very, very difficult and painful self-conscious emotions. Humiliation is a little bit different again. Humiliation is a response to external shame, but in a way that we get angry and we retaliate or we fight back. And, And so 
humiliation often has that more how dare you kind of element to it. And then, of course, fourthly is guilt, which is another really important self-conscious emotion. But guilt, I suppose, is kind of I've done something bad, whereas shame really is I am bad. And that's probably the common way that one might differentiate the two. And so definitely in CFT, we're working with external or internal shame, humiliation or guilt, trying to disentangle all of that. In some ways, shame is arising out of the threat system, especially social threat and and so on. Guilt is thought to arise out of the soothing system because the idea there is that we feel guilty because we've harmed someone who we care about or or we've harmed something that we care about. And so we often in CFT use compassion and the compassionate mind to help people just gently move from shame or I am bad to guilt, I've done something bad, and then to repair and repairing relationships and so on. Okay. And that's where the compassion piece, that that does make a lot of sense when you describe it that way, that if we've got that kind of self-shame, that I am bad feeling, and Mm. we can, I suppose, explore a bit of the humanity around that, that that is something that's come from the way our brain is I was going to say design how it's evolved (laughs) and then move it towards those feelings of, okay, well, what are the implications of that? Well, I've done harm or or damage to a a bond, another person, a relationship, et cetera, Mm. et cetera. How do I then understand that and then do something about it? So I think, you know, for Mm. me, particularly as a coaching psychologist, which is kind of where I operate, it's all about the doing, you know, how do I do something to improve my well-being, attain a goal, in this case, potentially mend a situation and mend ourselves, I suppose, a little bit too. If you think about somebody who has done harm to somebody else, you know, how do I move on from that to assist them, but also to assist me because otherwise that could be ruinous in some ways. Mm, I think we start to move then towards things like self-forgiveness or forgiveness of others and how that can be a very important act of compassion and self-compassion. In fact, self-forgiveness, but but even forgiving others is, is often important for self-compassion because we can let go of the anger and the vengeful feelings that might be there if someone has harmed us. But certainly, self-forgiveness is important for alleviating shame and or guilt. And, and then, Back to the old saying, may I be helpful rather than harmful to myself and others. So what can I do next to be helpful and to alleviate and prevent suffering? And actually in CFT, which I think would certainly be applicable to the work you're doing, we would certainly be looking beyond just alleviating and preventing suffering and towards flourishing. And Mm. what can I do next to grow and, and flourish and you know make a contribution and, and so on. Engage in therapy sounds like a good place to start probably for a lot of us, doesn't it? <laughs> yes. Well, it, it can be, I, I suppose, the wisdom. That's what we like to try to do first is, is how do we 
gather together the wisdom of our tricky brains and the wisdom mm. of how the mind works. And design is a good word, you know, like our brains were designed for us, not by us, and they can cause us a lot of suffering. And, and so if we can gather together the wisdom of, of our tricky brains and, and also some of the practices that can help to soften and soothe and ground and stabilize us, then we can move on to dealing with anxiety or anger or shame and eventually move towards flourishing. Yeah, perfect. And so on that note, for the benefit of our listeners, this isn't going to be a simple answer, but Mm. what are off the top of your head some of the best tips and strategies that you have for people to further develop their compassion either for themselves or others? The first thing I often think about is we always bring it back to the body. And so there's a really important first step there of probably four key things. There's the posture, trying to create an upright but relaxed kind of posture, rolling back the shoulders, opening up the chest, looking forward. And then secondly, creating a warm or friendly facial expression, just relaxing the face and maybe a faint smile, nothing too dramatic, but just creating a, a friendly facial expression. Starting to really practice that friendly inner voice tone. It takes practice. It doesn't take us any practice to do anxiety. (laughs) That seems to be fine without practice. But this stuff takes a bit of practice. So just literally practicing a, a friendly voice tone. And then, of course, slowing down the breathing. One of the set pieces in CFT is they sort of talk about soothing rhythm breathing. So really trying to slow down the breathing, activating the parasympathetic nervous system, down-regulating the body, slowing down the body, slowing down the mind. And and once we create that kind of physiological state, then we can use certain other practices such as imagery where we might start to imagine a safe place or we might start to imagine a compassionate person and we might start to think, "What, what might that person do or say What sort of words of wisdom might they offer in terms of this difficult situation that I'm going through? The the mind is like a spotlight, not that which it shines upon. And so, you know, our attention is often on threat, but we can shift the spotlight and and start to use safe place imagery, imagery of, of compassionate others, and then gradually develop a bit of an image of ourselves at our most compassionate. You know, what what am I like? when I'm at my most compassionate? What are some examples where I've given or received compassion over the years? Or what are some of the attributes that I'd really like to add into the mix? You know, is humor a part of compassion for me? Or or is it really about action? Starting to use imagery to just imagine our compassionate selves. And then we can start to put it into practice. A big part of, of CFT is kind of like method acting where we just learn about the compassionate self. Then we use imagery and other behavioral techniques to kind of practice it. And then we start to really embody that part of ourselves and it arrives whenever we Mm. might need it most. So this is obviously a a process that we can go through and it's a process of practice and rehearsal and, and gradual embodiment. But, you know, then... Once we've created this sense of our compassionate selves, this part of ourselves that we then have that part 
alongside whatever might happen and surely we'll face challenges or disappointments or stresses but that compassionate self will kind of be there and be there to offer wisdom and strength and courage and and a commitment to be helpful you know for the rest of our lives yeah so it's almost as you were describing that it sort of struck me that it, there's almost a, an element of identity here that we're always taking on a an identity around i am a compassionate person but we need to wrap our heads mm. around what that looks like and then try that on for size and practice it to a point where it is actually instilled in that mm. identity in a day-to-day way yeah exactly it, it really mm. is about cultivating that part of ourselves and mm. eventually it's the part that can be running the show you know sometimes mm our angry self takes over and starts running the show. But we sort of move towards this place where actually our compassionate self can be the one that just intervenes and sort of, okay, all right, guys, that's okay. I know you're angry. That's fair enough. Of course you feel a bit angry in this situation. What can we do to be helpful here? What a wonderful goal perhaps for 2021 Mm. to allow our Mm. compassionate selves to take over and play out through our actions, words and deeds. Yes. Stan, thank you so much for everything that you've shared today. It's been a fascinating conversation and I do love that you mentioned the need because I know a lot of what we've spoken about is very much about what's going on in our heads and I'm pointing Mm. to mine as I say that and yet those tips around the use of our bodies and our physical Mm. selves as a starting point for awareness, calm, soothing and then being able to move from there, I, I do, you know, something that I really come to appreciate over the last couple of years, despite having practiced yoga for many, many years, but I think I've only mm-hmm. really started to kind of get a better sense as a psychologist around, you know, the benefits of this is that we spend not nearly enough time in our bodies and way too much time in our heads sometimes to our detriment. Mm. So some great strategies there for our listeners to absorb and follow and put into practice. Mm. Of course, you can read more in The Gifts of Compassion, How to Understand and Overcome Suffering, which is now available, and we will have a link in the show notes to that. We'll also have a link to you do all sorts of cool stuff. You've got YouTube videos and Facebook. Facebook page and all sorts of things going on. So we'll put the links to all of that as well so that you can learn a little bit more about Stan and his work and about compassion-focused therapy because I suspect on the back of this interview we've piqued a bit of interest amongst our listeners. I know for a lot of people we have a concept of what therapy is, but therapy these days has changed significantly perhaps to what it was even 10 or 15 or 20 years ago. And there are so many Mm. different ways of engaging in therapy and and compassion-focused therapy is obviously one of them that that I think might sound very appealing to our listeners. And just a little warning for listeners, it's actually almost seductive. Once you get into thinking about (laughs) compassion, understanding it, you know, playing with it a little bit, you almost can't help. But, you know, it spreads. It, it just gets into your life. And that's certainly been my experience. That's a wonderful warning. Yeah. Stan, thank you again so much for your time and for our conversation today. Thank you. 
So I have to say that conversation with Stan was an absolute delight and I hope you got as much from his insights and knowledge and ideas as I did. Certainly the more I learn about compassion and self-compassion and the tool and techniques of compassion-focused therapy, and this is all relatively new to me, the more I find that I'm using these tools and techniques in my own life and certainly with my coaching clients for any of us who tend to have very high expectations of ourselves and that is my coaching clients more often than not and notice a lot of shoulds or shouldn't conversations you know I should be doing this I shouldn't be doing that exercising some compassion for yourself can be extraordinarily liberating and really good for your well-being and it just frees you up from those conversations that you get caught up in in your own mind to actually get on with the things that you're hoping and planning to get on with and you can find more about Stan and his work, Compassion Focused Therapy, and of course his book, The Gifts of Compassion, How to Understand and Overcome Suffering, which is just published by Australian Academic Press, in the show notes for this episode. So pop over to potential.com.au. We do have a new website. It won't look that different to you at your end, but trust me, it's quite different and has involved a huge amount of work from the wonderful team here to get it up and running from the back end and the front end, the bit that you see will evolve over time as well. One of the cool things we're working on for 2021. And while you're there, you might like to check out the details for my one-on-one coaching work. I do work with leaders and professionals and business owners and smart people like you looking to gain some clarity on goals and challenges or maybe your sense of self or maybe you're not very good at self-compassion. Maybe you'd like to develop some of the tips and strategies that we've talked about in today's episode. Maybe you'd like to work out a little more about who you are and what you're hoping to achieve, what you're looking towards professionally, or maybe you can help others in your team or organisation to thrive and flourish. These are all the sorts of things we talk about in coaching. And I do have a couple of coaching places open now. All my coaching's online and all of the details as well as online booking is available on the Potential Psychology website at potential.com.au. It would be very exciting to work with you. Our next podcast episode will be in your ears in mid-February. I will be chatting to Cass Dunn, fellow Australian psychologist and host of the Crappy to Happy podcast, which consistently rakes in the top five health and wellbeing podcasts on Apple Podcasts and has done so since its launch some years ago now. Cass is also the author of the Crappy to Happy series of books. So Crappy to Happy, Crappy to Happy Love What You Do, which is about finding meaning, purpose and happiness at work. And we'll be talking quite a bit about that one. And the upcoming Crappy to Happy Love Who You're with simple steps to build stronger relationships. And Cass and I are colleagues, but we're also friends. She has been our guest on the show before. Uh, She's wonderfully easy to talk to. She's full of great ideas and she's really excellent at making psychology simple and accessible. And so it's going to be a great fun and informative conversation. So stay tuned for that one. If you don't already subscribe to the show, hit subscribe or follow depending on where you listen to your podcasts and that episode and all of the subsequent episodes this year will arrive in your listening feed as soon as they drop. And before I go today, I have a little thank you to Meezy. Meezy has 
posted a review of the Potential Psychology podcast on Apple Podcasts, which is delightful. Thank you, Maisie. And Maisie says, relevant, insightful, must-listen apps. The kind of podcast where you go back to ep one and listen to every single show. Thanks, Ellen, for your great range of topics and worthy guests. So I just wanted to say thank you to Maisie for posting that review. It's absolutely what we aim to do here. So I'm so glad that we're hitting the mark with respect to the tone, the style, the content, our guests and all the other bits that make up our podcast episode. So thank you so much. Thank you to everyone who posts a review. Reviews do help us to be found. It helps spread the word of the great work that our guests do in the realms of well-being and human behaviour. And every time somebody writes a review. I read it. The team reads it, which is cool. And it does help to spread the word so others can find the podcast more readily. So thank you very much to Meezy and to everyone who sends us a rating or review, particularly an Apple podcast, because that still seems to be kind of the platform. But of course, anywhere. And we appreciate even just the time you've taken to listen in to this episode and all the others. So until we're back with our next episode, episode 93 with Cass Dunn, stay safe, go well, Take small steps to fulfill your potential and we'll see you soon.